0: Hi, my name's Tori, and I wish I knew more about blood products.
1: Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work.
2: Hi, my name is Olivia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in the team and solve conflict.
0: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crowe.
1: I'm Jesse Spur and this is a podcast by, for and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things.
0: Hello, my name is Liz Crow.
1: And I'm Jesse Spur.
0: Welcome to another episode of Five Things Nursing. And today we're very excited to introduce you to Dr. Shirag Patel, who is a consultant clinical geneticist here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. And he is going to attempt to take our small brains and teach us all about genetics. Hello and welcome.
1: Hello, thank you for inviting me. I think you've uh, set a bit of a daunting task all about genetics. We're <laughs> going to really thin slice this one to start with. So that we can, this, this can be part one of many, 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 depending how it goes. Mm. No pressure. Okay. So with, we always like to hear our guest's origin story, and it comes with the territory that you're in a super hyper-specialized field. Was that something you were always wanting to do when you started your venture into medicine, or did this come up? along the way? Uh, well sort of
2: I at university during my medical school uh, years I did a intercalated BSc in genetics and that sort of gave me a flavor of both the clinical and laboratory side of genetics um, and then I went into training in pediatrics and we saw a lot of genetic conditions as part of that specialty and so when it came to the decision of deciding which subspecialty I wanted to go into genetics sort of just came naturally um, and so that's, that's where my journey has taken me many years on.
0: So do you physician train and then do genetics? Is that how you get into it?
2: Correct. So clinical geneticists like myself are physician trained and then at the registrar level, you decide to do clinical genetics as a subspecialty. so you can come in from pediatric training or adult training.
0: Yeah, okay. And do you have your own college and
2: we're in Australia, we're part of the Royal College of Physicians. Um, in other countries we there may be individual colleges.
0: yeah. All right, let's get straight into it then. So your number one is, you're going to kind of give us a, a lovely overview, I hope, of Genetics 101. Like, what is it? What, what, are, what are genetics?
2: Well, I'm going to try to do this as best as I can. Unfortunately, I don't have any animation like Jurassic Park. <laughs> um, so look, really, when we're talking about genetics, we're really talking about our DNA, which is sort of the genetic code for us as humans. Um, And really, when we talk about DNA, it's made up of what we call four bases uh, that make these chains um, that form the double helix that most people know about. And in the human body, we have about 3.1 billion bases that make up our DNA. And most of it is actually what we call non-coding, i.e. it doesn't actually make any proteins or any functional parts of our cells about 1% of it is what we account for in our genes, which are really segments of our DNA. Um, so one way I to sort of think about it is genes are like individual books that we have, and the DNA is really the, the writing, the letters within those books. Um, and so when we talk about our genes, we have about 20,000 genes that do various different things um, in our body. And then all of these genes, they sit on what we call bookshelves or chromosomes, and we have... 46 chromosomes in each cell in the body. Um, So really when we're talking to our patients about genetics, we really have to use sort of basic concepts and that analogy of, I usually say a a cell is like a library, the chromosomes are like the bookshelves, the genes are the books on the bookshelves, and then the DNA, the code is the sort of the writing within the the
1: books. I wish you had taught me genetics at university (laughs) in my first degree because it wasn't taught that simply.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But that's who that's an easy way for us all to be able to remember it um because it, it is extremely complex isn't it
2: correct yes it is yes
0: and that's why there's a specialty like like even I'm imagining lots of senior medical officers would struggle with some of the complexity of what you guys have to work your way through
2: correct yes i think i mean most people sort of know basic biology but some of the intricacies about genetics and genetic conditions that is that does i guess involve a certain level of specialty experience
0: right so you said if i'm correct 3.1 billion bases is your dna so is that like like it's all floating around in your system like? What does 3.1 billion bases look like to make up DNA?
2: Well, obviously it sounds like quite a lot and that's why it's sort of packaged very microscopically within those chromosomes. But interestingly, if you put all of our DNA within a human individual end to end, you can actually go from the earth to the sun and back 93 times. That's the scale of the DNA inside a single individual.
0: Yeah. So, So when we're talking about genetic problems you know like well how much do we understand then like is there still so much for us still to learn like in the future you know there was that movie Gattaca where they were saying for those of you who haven't seen it there was this piece in the movie where essentially they're saying in the future you'll be born you'll get a full genetic workup and then we'll be able to say, oh, look, there's no point in you going to high school because you're never going to go to university, go straight to a menial job, and you're going to get all these diseases, so you're not very good marriageable. Like, like what, what? how much do we actually know and what is still yet to discover?
2: So we've actually made quite significant advancements, and one of the big milestones was the Human Genome Project, uh, which sort of ran from 1990 to 2013, where multiple individuals around the, the world sort of sequence the whole human genome. So we learned a lot at that time. We're still not quite there yet in the knowing what everything does, so all of our genes. So I mentioned we have 20,000 genes. We actually only know what sort of four to 5,000 of them are associated with, so human diseases. Um, but the other big advances we've had in recent years is our technology to ability to look at our genetic and our DNA uh, to really characterize what is causing disease and potentially future predictors of disease. So I think we may not be that far away from the Gattaca situation.
0: Not that we want that. No. Yeah. So number two is complex conditions versus pure genetic conditions. Now for someone like me who's not even done nursing or medicine, can you explain what on earth does that mean?
2: So I guess we've talked a lot about DNA and our genetic code, Um, and I guess what makes us different from each other, um, and most of us, um, between two individuals, we're 99.9% the same in our genetic code. That difference between us is due to what we call genetic variants, Um, and there can be different types of genetic variants, so these are changes in our DNA there are those types of variants that are very common in the population. So we may see them in more than one, 1% of the population. Uh, they occur throughout our genetic code. And these types of variants are what we call um, uh, predisposes to, I guess, traits that we have. So hair colour, eye colour, skin colour, but also some of these um, complex diseases that we see uh, very commonly um, in the hospital community setting. So, you know, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, dementia, Um, Now, these conditions are complex because they are an interplay with multiple genetic factors or these variants everywhere, but also a strong environmental component, so lifestyle, uh, smoking, diet, exercise, and then environmental exposures. Now, these kind of complex conditions, um, you do see them cluster in families when you take a family history, but they're not very clearly inherited in a pattern that you can say to someone, this is your exact risk of developing this condition. If we compare that to, I guess, the pure genetic conditions, with the, which are the types of conditions that we see um, as a clinical geneticists, these are individually sort of quite rare in the population. Um, so they estimate that around 2 million Australians are affected by a rare condition, and out of those, 80% will be genetic. Now, these conditions are due to what we call pathogenic variants in our DNA. So these are changes in our DNA that mess up the protein, they stop it from doing what it should be doing and very clearly cause disease. And there's very there's a very limited um, uh, input from our environment. It might modify a little bit, but there's not a strong component there. Um, and, and these kind of conditions can present sort of pan life. Um, so we might see them present in pregnancy. Uh, in childhood, but there are many genetic conditions actually present in adulthood. And I think that's actually a misconception that when people think about genetics, they think, oh, it's always congenital, but actually there are adult presentations as well. Um, So some examples that people may have heard of, um, so we have Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, polycystic kidney disease, um, and then the big sort of Angelina Jolie effect, the BRCA1, BRCA2 genes that cause breast and ovarian cancer. Um, so, and these kind of conditions, uh, there may be a very strong family history, and you can quite clearly work out the inheritance and provide a risk for an individual. Um, or some of these can happen for the first time in individuals, and there may not be a clear cut family history.
0: Okay, so this is this whole podcast is intimidating me, but I'm going to try and ask a sensible question. Uh, the complex conditions; these are the ones that really it's potentially part gene but also it's got some environmental factors like diabetes, like uh, heart condition. And they're complex because if you've got a whole family who are eating the same diet and uh, everybody smokes and that's, you know, the great-grandparents, the grandparents, you know, they're all in the same house. And then of that, loads of people have got diabetes. It would be very hard to say... This is a genetic condition because how do you pull that apart from all the environmental and lifestyle factors? Is that what you're saying?
2: That's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think with families in particular, you see that intergenerational effect. And as you were saying, you know, within a household, if there's a common environmental factor, that you've already got that as a predisposing risk factor.
0: Yeah. And so the pure genetics. So if I had a, a child with Down syndrome or trisomy 21, um, then the that. That is unlikely then if I've had a child that one of my other children will go on to have a child with Down syndrome or, do, you know, like, is there then a predisposition or those things are so rare or is that just too complicated to answer?
2: So that, that will depend on the type of condition uh, and the underlying cause. So different conditions will have different risks for family members for Down syndrome. Generally speaking, there would be a lower Recurrence risk for another child, but for other conditions, uh, there could potentially be up to fifty percent risk, which is very different. Um, So it really just depends on the condition.
0: Now, is the most common kind of condition like that? Is it cystic fibrosis? Because twenty-five percent of the population carry that gene. Is that right?
2: Uh, So cystic fibrosis is common, uh, but not twenty-five percent carry the gene. One in twenty people of a European ancestry are carriers, so that would be 5%.
0: 5%. Well, math was never my (laughs) strong point. (laughs) Is cystic fibrosis the most common kind of pure genetic problem?
2: No, actually the the most common is actually familial hypercholesterolemia, which is one in 500 individuals.
0: And what is Uh, that?
2: So this is where individuals have a genetic predisposition to high cholesterol, um, which again, this is – probably verging on, is this a complex, is this a pure genetic condition? But these individuals in these families develop high cholesterol levels at a very young age, so we're Mm. saying teenage years, where potentially those environmental factors haven't quite come into play yet. Um, So that would be one of the most uh, common conditions. The other most common would be polycystic kidney disease, which Mm. has a very similar sort of prevalence, uh, which affects our kidneys and gives you kidney cysts and risk of kidney failure.
0: Yeah. So how would I know if I'm just a person listening to this, you know, and healthcare professionals are so good at diagnosing ourselves, like are there red flags, you know, if we're thinking back across our ancestry, are there things that, that might prompt us to think, oh, maybe I should go and see a clinical geneticist?
2: So the types of red flags we sort of educate healthcare professionals and our patients on uh, to think about a pure genetic condition would be is there a family history? So are there other individuals who have a similar clinical presentation? Um, obviously, we've talked about there can be these complex diseases. The other things we think about are sort of early presentations of common diseases or early presentations of, a, or an unusual feature that you wouldn't expect in someone of that age. So I guess if I use the, the breast cancer example, uh, we know that there is a risk of breast cancer, particularly after the age of 50. But if we see a female with breast cancer in her 20s, we really have to think about a genetic predisposition. Um, the other things are multiple organ systems being affected. Um, and that not only applies to children, but also adults. You know, there are individuals who see multiple specialties in a hospital, but no one's thought, of, thought to do all these features tie together, um, which is one of the good things about my job is I quite like it it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle, piecing it all together. Um, and then sometimes there can be quite specific findings on investigations that a specialist may do that say, this is very characteristic of a particular genetic condition um, that then prompts that individual to think, let's think about genetics.
0: Hmm. So your number three is what is clinical genetics?
2: So as a specialty, it's really the area of medicine uh, that deals with diagnosis, management, and counseling of individuals and their families uh, who have genetic conditions. Um, So as a specialty, as I've mentioned before, it is a pan-life specialty. Um, Although we may train in pediatrics or adult medicine, we actually see people before conception, during pregnancy, as children, and as adults. Um, So we see a quite broad range of patients. Um, and really, the, the the practice I guess that we do as part of clinical genetics is what we call genetic counselling. Um, and really, what that is um, is it's a non directive uh, educational process um, where we're talking to our patients um, and their family members about the the condition, the you know the details of what it what it what it, what it how it can present, the management, the long term prognosis. Uh, we also talk to them about what actually causes the condition, the genetic aspects of it. And this is where, you know, we have to use a lot of our sort of lay terminology or um, uh, lots of diagrams. Um, And then we're uh, educating them about what does this mean for their family? What are those risks that we're talking about? How can we clarify those risks? Um, And then a large proportion of our work is also talking about family planning, um, and more and more now, genetic testing as well to help make diagnoses uh, where traditionally we weren't able to make them.
0: Um, who else is important in a clinical genetic service? Is it is it just you guys, or who else is who else might people see?
2: So the other stream we have in our service are the genetic counsellors. Um, so these are individuals who either have a nursing or a science uh, background, and then they will do a masters in genetic counselling. Um, so the types of patients we may see individually may be very different, um, and that's part of the triage when we obtain referrals to to the service.
0: It's a it's a funny term, and I don't know what else you'd use because as soon as you say, you know, I've been doing counselling, I counsel the family. You know, you aren't asking them to lie down on a couch and talk to them about their relationship with their mother. You're more like, tell me about your mother's you know, history medically because you're looking at that family context to try and see, yeah, you're, I'm imagining you're looking for patterns or you're looking for abnormalities. And and I guess, you know, when people go back in time, often people think, oh, look, there's, there's nothing in my family. But you do your family history and then you find out like your great grandmother had four stillbirths and then the person before her had nine stillbirths. And then You know, there's a pattern perhaps that, you know, it's hard to know was that as a result of the hard times. But sometimes it's not till you look backwards that people can pull that together and say actually maybe that wasn't because the baby was born on the farm. There was actually something genetically, you know, wrong that it was before the time that people could pick it up. Is that right?
2: Yeah, so I guess there are two uh, types of scenarios that we – three types I guess we deal with. So there'll be those where um, individuals have come to us from a specialty physician because they've made a diagnosis of a genetic condition. So that's really where sometimes some of those aspects of really delving into the family history, are, are they're helpful, but really the main aim there is to talk to that patient about their diagnosis and then what it means for their families. The, the other group are those who come to us for a diagnosis where, you know, someone's really questioning, could this be something genetic? And that's where really piecing together all this information is really helpful, you know, taking a detailed family history. And sometimes that does involve obtaining uh, family records with with obviously consent um, from those individuals and then piecing together all their investigations, say, look, we think you've got this condition. Let's try and prove that. And then you may get a follow on from that. Um, and then the, the next big group of individuals are the the healthy people um in families so you know they're not under a gp they're usually not under a specialist but they're asking that question i've got this family history is this important to me and that's where again we're sort of talking to them about what their risks are so yes the word counseling is quite broad and may not be the right word to use because it's so much more than really the psychosocial side of a diagnosis
0: But I imagine you're still doing a lot of loss and grief work uh, in the context, you know, because some of these diagnoses have huge implications for fertility, for reproduction, for, you know, making decisions about proceeding with children, a whole range of things, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and I think that's a a fair part of our consultation is the implications of the diagnosis for the individual and for their families. So, you know, common emotions, they'll be already going through the roller coaster of accepting a diagnosis and what that could mean for them in the future. But like you said, it's planning for their own future financially for their children. Um, We see a lot of genetic guilt uh, Mm. of potentially passing a condition on. Um, And and then really uh, allowing the individual to pass that information on to their families because genetics is just not about you, it's also about your family. Um, And, you know, we're trying to facilitate those conversations between patients and their family members to say, you know, you could be at risk. So as genetic services, one thing we do to help that conversation is uh, we provide letters for relatives that they can then distribute wherever they are in the world so that they can then also access genetic services. And we try try and tease out what the issues are in the family. And, you know, not every family gets on, but usually there are some barriers you can break through to share that information.
0: Yeah. And I I always used to, because I worked in paediatrics for a long time, um, I always used to wonder what those car rides home were like with a couple when they had received, you know, a devastating genetic um, diagnosis that had, you know, huge implications for the child they've had and then decisions whether or not to have any other child where they're told, you know, like if you'd married anyone else out of four billion people, this wouldn't have happened. How they get back in the car and think, we were really meant to be together you know like it's so it must be so confronting
2: yeah and unfortunately I, I don't sit in the car afterwards to find out what those conversations are but uh, we do see those roller coasters of uh, emotions and sometimes that conflict between parents as well mm. particularly of children and there may be the one parent who sort of takes that sort of step back let's just deal with every day as we want to and then the other parent will want to research every little aspect about the condition sometimes incorrectly so one of our roles is also helping navigate families to you know correct sources of information don't just google this correct you know patient groups so they can actually connect with other families and and we we do sort of advise them to take their time accepting this diagnosis and reaching out to other families who've had experience to talk about day-to-day management um but it it can be a roller coaster of emotions i think and it it just it can take time uh, for these families to accept these diagnoses yeah
0: All right. So I'm sure now everybody is like, oh my goodness, what genetic disorder do I have in my family? So let's talk about number four, genetic testing. Um, You know, who needs it? Who doesn't? Like, what's the way of the future with this? Should we, you know, should we all be signing up for, you know, I I won't name one of the marketable things that are advertised on TV to find out about our ancestry. (laughs) Tell us a little about genetic testing.
2: So I think uh, that's a really good example of, uh, I guess, the lay understanding of genetic testing, which is really direct-to-consumer testing. Uh, Really, the the proportion of work that we do in uh, hospitals and clinical services is what we call clinical testing, clinical genetic testing. Um, So this is genetic testing that is done in an accredited laboratory, um, and there are many in Australia and overseas, um, where they have quite strict quality controls. They're all regulated laboratories. And these types of tests are ones that are requested by a clinician after having performed an assessment on an individual. Um, ascertained that a genetic test is beneficial for them. But also they've the, the patient themselves have had a conversation about the genetic test. What are the advantages for me? What are the disadvantages? What am I getting from this test? Um, and a lot of these tests are um, sort of funded either through the department that's organizing the test, or now there are a few tests funded by Medicare. Um, and the tests will vary depending on what is the condition that we're testing for and what the cause is, what's changed in our genetic code, I guess. Um, And so um, these types of tests can be either for diagnosis, so someone who has the condition, we're trying to make the diagnosis, or as I've mentioned before, the uh, the unaffected relatives of individuals where we're essentially predicting their future um, with with a genetic test based on what we know is present in their family. So that's the clinical testing. I guess when we talk about direct-to-consumer testing, um, which is, again, commercially available overseas, not so much in Australia at the moment, Um, there's usually no clinician involved here. The patient goes onto the internet, finds the company of their choice. Uh, They usually send you a saliva kit. You pay for it yourself. And then there's usually no discussion before or after about the test or the results. Um, and I guess the, the issues with uh, direct-to-consumer testing is there's not a lot of regulation at the moment. Um, so there are some quality control issues. Um, many of the outcomes of this testing, if repeated in a, a creditor laboratory, are actually incorrect. Um, and some of the information that you get may not be meaningful in a medical management perspective. Um, And so uh, some good examples, as you mentioned, are the sort of Ancestry.com, which is very different. But there are some commercial companies that will look at sort of nutrigenomics, um, they'll look at athletic performance. um, And uh, more and more now we're seeing direct-to-consumer testing for these complex diseases that we've mentioned, you know, heart disease, diabetes, uh, where they sort of just providing you with a, a risk um, and, uh, I've seen a couple of scenarios where they come back with a test that says they're at reduced risk of lung cancer and the patient says, oh, so it's okay to carry on smoking. Mm-hmm. So it can, they can all be misinterpreted as well. Um, so that, I think that's the difference between these two tests. Um, and th- there's a big issue about data at the moment, um, with these companies is that who's looking after the privacy of your data. A lot of it can be sold to then pharma companies and there's no regulation there.
0: Yeah, I I actually remember reading somewhere that something like 18 unknown murder cases in America were solved through one of the dot-coms that people had sent through, the FBI went through and looked at all the DNA, found like someone who was like definitely related, worked it back to who was in the area at that time because it's not owned by anyone, that DNA. Like, and so I think they've changed it now, but the FBI are like, oh, you know what? Let's just run some... DNA through this and we're able to solve some crimes.
2: And that's actually one of the biggest fears that we see our patients have. um, And and now more and more as we've had more data breaches, you know, with Mm. uh, certain telecom companies um, is, you know, patients are asking what is going to happen with my genetic data. And I think we can provide them with that assurance, particularly when we're using accredited laboratories, that there are those regulations in place as to who can access that data. And uh, usually that is not accessible by law enforcement, um, et cetera.
0: Um, And I remember, you know, initially a lot of the genetics in the early days used to take like four or five months to come back and, you know, some of it got sent to the United States and some of it got sent to Adelaide. Um, Are we getting much more efficient with that kind of screening and testing or does it still take a really long time to do?
2: That has definitely improved even over my 15 years of clinical genetics. Um, so we, the, the tests now can range from, I guess, the longest I might wait now is four months, yep. uh, which is a massive difference. Um, we now have the capacity to do ultra-rapid testing where we can get a result in five days. Wow. Um, and we did have a, a large project in Australia um, recently that looked at ultra-rapid testing for sick children in intensive care. Um, And that provided many diagnoses that changed management for those patients and their families as well.
0: And, you know, to be able to actually be able to give a diagnosis, it's such a critical time. I know because I was working as a clinician, it's a game changer, isn't it? And that's only going to grow over the course of the coming years, isn't it?
2: Correct. I think a lot of that has been hindered by uh, laboratories um, and their workforce, um, also funding for testing um, and our technology. And our technology has definitely improved. The cost of these tests is coming down significantly. uh, And the tools we have to analyse and interpret the tests is changing. So that time is being reduced quite significantly. Mm.
0: Terrific. We've already touched on this a little bit. Your number five is the psychosocial and kind of ethics of genetics for patients, but also their much wider family. Um, You know, I guess this is something that the bedside nurses in particular may have a real part to play in all of this. Can you uh, explain to us what are are some of the complexities about speaking to well families about what, what might be the next steps?
2: So I think um, caring for individuals who have genetic conditions, whether it's an inpatients or outpatients, I think common questions that they will ask is, you know, is this going to be important to my brother, sister, my children? And I think be able to facilitate those conversations or at least direct them to an appropriate avenue to answer those questions, I think is important. And then really where there are fragmented relationships is really working with those individuals to how can they better share that information with their family members. Um, and as I said, you know we have a good mechanism of providing letters that they can distribute and they're generally anonymous, so you can just send them as an email through a relative, through another relative, through another relative. Um, so th- those are the important conversations. I think the other thing we sometimes see is um, secrecy of a diagnosis um, and sort of hiding it. Uh, and there can be a generational effect here where people don't pass information on to their children they go on then have children themselves and suddenly it all comes out of the woodwork and that can really fragment relationships um, when there's that secrecy of a diagnosis in a family. Um, so I think trying to facilitate those conversations is the important part here.
0: And and I've seen this so many times in peds where, some, you know, you they have a conversation with the either the geneticist or a genetic counsellor and then you see the couple afterwards and they're like, that was definitely you, that was definitely your family. Um, and you, you know, and I think some of that's a grief reaction as well, but this whole, where they can't hear that maybe it's a combination of the genes. Cause that's what happens sometimes, isn't it? Like one person in isolation may not be enough to, to pass the gene on, but it's, it's a combination of both people and the, you know, both couple, members of the couple.
2: Yes. So sometimes we do see that sort of blame game of, oh, it's come from your side of the family, your side of the family. And sometimes that's not proven. Mm -hmm. Um, So those sort of conversations really don't go very far. Um, But it really, again, it just depends on the basis of the condition. So cystic fibrosis being a good example, which comes from both sides of the family. So both parents are carriers. um, Whereas there are other conditions that will come from one particular side of the family or they're transmitted through females and affect um, particularly the boys in the family. So there can be that guilt that individuals or a blame game uh, of it's come from your side of the family and that can fracture relationships as well
0: in the future what do you where do you predict all of this is going and what could be the ethical implications of that like if we go back to that movie Gattaca where it was kind of like you know age four someone's like you're not good marriage material because you've got too many cancers and you've got too much Alzheimer's and so you know is, you know, knowledge is power, but it also comes with all these complexities around this sort of thing, doesn't it?
2: Yes. I think I think we are actually at that point right now. So uh, we've talked a lot about genetic testing and we previously talked about our DNA. And really when we're talking about our genetic code, it's our genome. That's the human genome. We can now... Test the the whole human genome, and potentially that can be done at birth. Um, and there there are notions, particularly overseas, of you know, do we test a newborn baby, sequence their whole genome, then you've got that information there to access as you require, and that does pose a lot of ethical issues. You've got the the consent for what are we testing for? What information do we give? That family at that newborn period, or do you wait and give it drip feed it depending on the child's age? Who has access to that information, um, and then the consent around that t- that test? So I think those issues are going to be on the horizon very soon Um, and I think that's why you know these types of tests need to be done with that appropriate discussion with the appropriate regulatory frameworks and usually some kind of national standard of this is what this test is appropriate for this is what we're not going to do.
0: So if we're thinking about healthy adults in the family and the ethical kind of things to consider like I guess each family's going to have to determine for themselves, aren't they, about what a condition means and, and percentages. I guess people are like, what are the chances? What are the percentages? You know, what what do you, what, as a as a clinical geneticist, like? What are the sorts of things that you say to those people?
2: So, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, um, for different families, a condition will mean something very different, and that will be based, again, on their family history, their exposure to that condition, their their lived experience. Um, whereas then we might see individuals who report a distant family history, they have no context of the condition, they're not really sure what they're actually being tested for. So I think that's one of the first parts, is really making sure the individual has a good understanding of what it is that they're potentially being tested for um, that's part of their family. Um, and then really when we think about the, the genetic test that we might be able to offer these relatives, um, we we sort of counsel them on the advantages and the disadvantages for that person, individual person. Uh, and it's also a time thing as well. So for some people it might not be the right time now to know could they develop something in the future and they might need to just watch and wait. Um, so some of the advantages we think about is, you know is there a medical management benefit to knowing now? So can we implement some kind of surveillance? Uh, so the, the the cancer disorders are a good example where people could go off and have screening to pick up cancer early. Um, are there any treatments that can slow the progression of the ki- uh, condition down? The other advantages for individuals, depending on where they are in their life, it might involve family planning decisions or retirement planning or lifestyle planning, um, particularly for some of the you know, devastating neurological disorder disorders, you may change the career that you decide to go into knowing that you might develop this condition in the future. Um, and for some people it's just the anxiety of not knowing. They know they've got a family history and they just can't bear not knowing their risk. The flip side to that, however, is you know there are many conditions where there aren't medical management in place or there's no surveillance. So we're really just giving them an answer and you then you have this trading of anxieties where you then sit there waiting for those symptoms to develop. And, and again, each person is very different and we talk to them about which situation would be worse for you. Um, the other aspect of the, the negative side is, you know, that we've talked about that sense of genetic guilt. Um, and we sometimes see um, changes in family dynamics. Uh, so particularly a good example might be where two siblings come forward for this pre-symptomatic predictive testing, one test positive one test negative uh, we sometimes see survivor guilt or resentment towards the person who tested negative it fractures their relationship um, and then there's obviously then that natural concern for children um, and the the issue with testing young children for future diseases is they're not part of the conversation they they haven't made that decision themselves they can't consent they can't consent um, And uh, at the moment, uh, another big issue that comes up is uh, insurance and genetic testing, so particularly life insurance. Um, In Australia at the moment, there's a moratorium in place until the middle of this year. Hopefully that gets renewed where life insurance companies cannot ask about the results of genetic testing. Hopefully we moved more towards a European and US model where there's a blanket ban so that, again, is another factor for some patients that they decide not to pursue testing when they're healthy, but they've got a family history because they're concerned about some of those sides.
0: You'd have to be worried about commercialisation. You know, these, these conversations are so complex and you're really helping people navigate something that is rare, uh, anxiety-provoking, could completely change the course of their life, their relationships... Uh, their decision-making, you don't want to be doing that with something that you cut out of a magazine or you, you know, download, you know, like, but it must worry you in the future that commercialism, because I'd imagine if a lot of people believe they can get a whole genomic sequencing thing with 150 bucks, it's a good investment.
1: And then you can sell some essential oils to treat that probable disease. Yeah. (laughs) Very true. Uh, I think that's where I talked about
2: the difference between clinical testing and direct-to-consumer testing. Um, and I think, look, you know, we have to evolve with the times. I think more and more what we will start to see are online education tools for patients to, I guess, access that information um, uh, upfront and make those decisions without necessarily having to go and see uh, necessarily a professional in person. So we, there is going to have to be some kind of hybrid, hybrid. model. Yeah. Um, and and there, there is that in place at the moment with um, what we call sort of car- expanded carrier screening for couples who don't necessarily have to have a family history of a condition, they're thinking About starting a family, and they want to know are they carriers of the same condition, and that type of testing is becoming more readily available, usually through an online platform. But there are there are educational tools online, and there usually is a genetic counselling service associated with that uh, sort of online request. Um, So I think we will move towards there, but we'll need that regulation in place.
0: And for me, like I guess a lot of what we've talked about has been a fascinating and b kind of a little bit scary, but. For someone who's worked with um, a genetic service for a very long time, overwhelmingly, information has been power. It has a really uh, enabled and, um, I guess, given people courage or certainty around things rather than a fear. They know it, so they maybe choose an IVF path to, you know, make sure the embryos don't carry that, and then you know, decisions can be made. And I guess my personal interactions with families who have used genetic service has been extremely wonderful and powerful uh, and just, you know, I see the future is so exciting in relation to this about what we might understand about diseases in the future um, and what we can do to prevent or delay onset uh, will be pretty exciting.
2: Yeah, I think that empowerment that you've talked about for patients and their families of knowing more about the condition you know a lot of patients go through years of uncertainty many investigations and then finally having that diagnosis that sense of relief but then mm-hmm. knowing what they need to look out for in the future plan their medical management a bit better and you know we are in this era of you know uh, you know, sort of disease modifying agents that can modify the disease and uh, potentially gene therapies on the horizon for particular certain diseases, you know, uh, retinal diseases, we're now looking at gene therapy Um, and some of these paediatric disorders, there are some drugs that are showing some good promise. So we have to be optimistic, I think. Hmm.
0: All right. Terrifyingly, I'm going to try and take all of that and make it like really succinct. I'm not going to – you know, we've had so many in-depth conversations. I'm going to try and really whittle it down and hope I don't get it wrong.
1: I like package.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Be quiet, Jessie. All right. <laughs> Number one was, you know, genetics 101. W- what is it? And you know one of the things that I took about this is that 99.9% of the time we are the same. <laughs> Genetically we are the same. So we're talking about these – when we've got 3.1 billion bases that make our DNA and 99.9% of the time we're the same, it, it just highlighted to me about how specialised this whole um, thing is and that your gene- so I loved the whole library analogy. So, you know, you, the cell is the library, I think is what you said, and the genes are the books and the DNA is the writing – And if we took all of our DNA, DNA, we could go back and forth to the sun 93 times. So, and our our genes sit on these 46 chromosomes. So it is really complex, but overall human beings are the same. And when something goes wrong, that can be catastrophic for someone, but we're still essentially the same people. I really loved, that's the message I took anyway. (laughs) Number two. Complex conditions versus pure genetic conditions. And the complex conditions, this is what I took, is those genetic variances. There's changes in the DNA, but what we're seeing is is that families often live together, have the same lifestyle, exposed to the same contaminants or things. So it's very hard for us to know what proportion some things like heart conditions, cancers, diabetes are purely genetics or in this case, they're these complex conditions because it's probably part DNA and part lifestyle environmental factors. The pure genetic conditions, the difference there is that it's probably got very little to none about what environmental exposures you have. There is actually something wrong with the gene, would you say, so or the DNA?
2: Correct. It's the the what we call mutations in layman terms, but they yep. are changes in our DNA that disrupt what the gene does.
0: Yes, and so that's more when we see um, these rare syndromes, uh, etc. They're the they're the pure, and that red flags for that can be purely genetic. So they can be family history, unusual features, uh, mul- multiple organ systems, um, or you know if there's just been something like you know, everyone in the family has had someone die before the age of 20 on the football field. <laughs> this, is, this could be a genetic red flag uh, that deserves some important investigations.
1: And stop playing football.
0: <laughs> All right. Number three, what is clinical genetics? And you said this is the area of medicine that really specialises in the diagnosis, management and counselling of people around genetic conditions and that you see people really in pregnancy, paediatrics and adults. It's a really developmentally all-encompassing kind of specialty of medicine because you're, you know, like it's right from the fetus or preconception all the way through um, until uh, people are elderly. So there's two kind of ways that people find their way to a genesis. The first is they've received a diagnosis that's so specialized from their physician or their GP or their paediatrician, they've come to you for some clarification around that. And the second is there's something going on in a family and people are concerned about that and people, you know, like their local GP or their obstetrician is unable to help. So they're coming to kind of say, can you help us with this? So number four is genetic testing. And there are two types of genetic testing. The first is clinical genetic testing, which is done in an accredited lab It's highly regulated, it's requested by a clinical geneticist and then that information is fed back to a medical professional. The second is direct-to-consumer and this is the sort of thing that we might see advertised on the TV saying find out about your DNA or where's your heritage um, come from. These labs are not regulated currently Uh, They're not overseen by a medical person and some of their findings, when done in an accredited lab, are found to be completely different. So, it's really mindful that, you know, $50 is not going to buy you genomic sequence. All right. And your fifth and final point is that, you know, there's a real psychosocial and ethical component to this that we may see some ongoing complexity as technology and information comes to hand about at what point do we give people this genetic information? At what point do we test? Uh, Once we've got that knowledge, what do we do with it? Like for some people, that knowledge is power. For other people, it's very contextual. Um, And so that there there is this very, um, I guess, kind of intimate work that you're doing with people, talking to them about um, what this means for them today, tomorrow, in the future, what this means for um, future generations within their family? And then how do you negotiate that when some members of the family, you know, have the diagnosis um, and some people don't and there's survivor guilt and there's resentment, uh, et cetera. But overall, I guess our take-home message was that clinical genetics is fascinating. It's playing a really important part in the, the way that we're doing medicine leading into the future. How'd that go?
2: Very good. <laughs> very well.
0: That was very stressful. Uh, can I just say thank you very much for joining us today on Five Things, I think, our first doctor, actually. Oh,
2: thank you for, bit, for the invite. First medical That's good doctor,
0: fun. yes. <laughs> thank you.
1: The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things.